I can't tell you how many times people have said, Mr. Counselor, I'd rather give you the money than give it to her. And I said, you won't feel like that in three years, and we're going to put that in writing, and you're going to think about it a little bit. That's Randy Kessler, renowned celebrity divorce attorney and the co-founder of Kessler and Solomiani. They think they're going to get their two pounds of flesh. If they go to court and they expose him or her as this horrible person, they think they're going to get everything. It's not a pain and suffering case. You know, we don't get treble damages for somebody being a bad person in, in divorce. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Randy Kessler to discuss what it takes to become the go-to lawyer for celebrity and high net worth clients, why embracing discomfort fuels growth and success, and the importance of doubling down on your strengths. I don't think you can be good at something if you're not really passionate about it, if you don't really love it. And I don't think you can really be passionate about something if you're not good at it. You don't have to do a little bit of everything. You're good at something. Whatever you're good at, do more of that. Figure out what's worked for you and that you enjoy doing, and you will profit from it. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Michael. So we've been wanting to do this for a while. We were just talking about the fact that I think it's good that you've come on now because more people listen to the podcast now than they did you know, a year or two ago, but you are without a doubt one of the most sought after family law attorneys on the planet, a true thought leader in the industry. You've written multiple books. You're an adjunct professor at Emory Law School. We'll rewind the clock a little bit. What got you into all this stuff? Oh my gosh, where do we start? Let's, you want to go back to uh, when I was three years old? Yeah, How much time yeah we go we back got? to birth if you want. Yeah, that's true. But honestly, when I was three or four, my grandfather, who was a cab driver in Miami from the airport, used to tell me, you know, you're going to be a lawyer because he was son of immigrants. I mean, you know the story, right? It's you're going to get educated and you're going to become something. And I don't know that that's why I did it, but certainly planted a seed. Lawyers were who you respected. They were educated. They became, you know, leaders in, in the community. And uh, that's what he wanted for me. So that was my first real occupational, directional advice from any family member. There's multiple areas of law that you could have practiced. Why, why the route towards family law? You know, I like to say fade, happenstance. You never know. It's my passion. I was one of the few lucky people in the law that found their passion the first time out. I loved being in court. I loved helping people. And when I started my own practice, I'd been out three years or so. I was the young guy. So, hey, you're hungry. Will you do my traffic ticket case? Will you do my small DUI case? Will you handle my divorce case? Everyone else says I can't get alimony. And that's what stuck. The divorce cases, I felt like I was really helping people. And they came to me eventually because they heard I was good at family law as opposed to you're young, you're hungry, you'll take anything. And so my ego got bitten a little bit. And, you know, I felt like I was really doing something that was worthwhile and meaningful. And I said, you know, I'm going to change my email address to 
family law instead of generic at AOL or whatever it was back then. It meant I lost some business, right? Nobody wanted to come hire a DUI lawyer if their firm said that they did family law. But hindsight's twenty twenty, but it turned out good for me. Man, even back then, you knew the, the importance of focus and having a, a unique value proposition. What compelled you to start your own law firm? So I'd worked for a couple small firms, and they were good. And I, candidly, the person that I worked for last, it wasn't the best fit. I uh, didn't feel able to do what I wanted to do, and I didn't feel respected and appreciated. And I said, you know what? I'm going to think about something else. I started talking to other firms, and I started realizing I don't have children yet. I can eat peanut butter and jelly if I have to. I'm going to try it. If not now, when? I asked the same questions that all lawyers used to ask back then. Do I need a secretary? Do I need a, a computer? Do I need one or two phone lines? Because back then, if the phone was busy, the next client couldn't call in, right? We didn't have call waiting. And I just started asking everybody. And I think that was part of what helped me, Michael. I just asked everybody for input. Anyone that had their own firm, I said, how do I do it? What do I do? What do I ask? And those people became vested in my success. So when I opened my own firm, they would check in on me. How are you doing? Which was great because they had cases that they didn't take or the famous words for every divorce lawyer when you talk to another lawyer is, ooh, I hate that stuff. I never do it. I will send every divorce that walks in my door to you as long as you take care of my friends and my clients and they're happy. And so that sort of was my start. Yeah. And early on, obviously, you weren't as well known as you are today. You weren't in the media. There, you know, there weren't as many referrals coming through the door. How did you go about getting cases? Well, I'd love to say that it was intentional, but I think a lot of it was personality. I just showed up. I'm a giver. I like to be, I'm a bar junkie. I ended up chairing a lot of, you know, the bar associations, the family law sections of the American Bar, Atlanta Bar, Georgia Bar. So getting out there was meeting people. But as far as how do I get the bigger cases or the well-named cases that you asked about, I think it's because at first, maybe I had a hankering for it. I just didn't like that a lot of NFL athletes would go around and not pay the child support and never get held accountable. And so I represented a lot of women that had children with NFL athletes or other athletes, even if I didn't get paid right up front. And eventually something switched. Sooner or later, they started coming to me a lot of the hip-hop guys would come to me and they'd say, I just want to meet with you. I'd say, why? You got a situation? They said, no, but if I do, she can't hire you now that I've talked to you, right? And so I said, that makes sense. I said, my manager told me that. So I met, I've met with a lot of folks that I've never represented just to make sure I don't represent the other side. And I think that helped. So that's interesting. I mean, so now I think today, many attorneys listening, they would love to have like big name clients, celebrity clients, they're athletes, they're you know, hip-hop stars, reality TV stars, recording artists, whatever it is. But what do you find, like, one, attracts them to you, right? And then two, how you know, is working with those types of clients perhaps different from other types of clients? Well, first of all, I'd say be careful what you wish for because it's, sometimes it's not all that, right? Sometimes the image is bigger than reality. But I'm attracted to it like anybody. I'm, you know, I love athletes. I thought that's what I wish I could do. We all grew up dreaming about being famous if we could be a superstar in, in whatever, in, in entertainment. So I enjoyed it, and that was sort of the appeal to it. But as I, as I got to know them, I realized... And you hear this all the time. It's very cliche. They're just people. I mean, I'll never forget. I met with a guy who played for the Buffalo Bills. And I grew up in New Orleans. And I'm a Saints fan. Sorry, you Atlanta folks. I'm a Saints fan, black and gold. But I was talking to him. And at the end of the interview, I said, by the way, you grew up in Shreveport, right? He said, yeah. I said, who dat? And he looked at me and said, who dat? I'm like, you play for the Buffalo Bills, but you root for the Saints? He said, you better believe it. That's how I grew up. So realizing that they're just people and they have the same desires, hopes, dreams, concerns that we all do, it made it a lot easier. And now I realize... You ask them about their craft. They love talking about what they do. That's their passion. Yeah. I'd love it if you would, you would share. You know, I understand there's a lot of these are under like attorney-client privilege and there's confidentiality, but I remember you shared a story with me about the experience you had with Evander Holyfield. Sure. Some have been covered. That was widely covered in the press. I mean, most of the folks that we represent that are famous, 
no one has any idea. And that makes me feel really good too. When I see yeah. them on TV or run into them at the Super Bowl and someone gives me a bear hug and I have a special bond with them. But the folks that are out there, I don't mind. The stories are fun. Evander Holyfield, I'm sure I'm not the only person that had this encounter with him, but at halftime of our jury trial, when the jury was out, the judge was out, our partner Marvin Solomiani was a big boxing fan and he had fought Lennox Lewis twice and he was showing him, you know, within a hair of his nose, he would swing at my partner just to show him what he did. I was scared. I said, Mr. Holyfield, you are not going to hit my partner, are you? Without cracking a smile, he looked at me and said, Mr. Kessler, I don't hit anybody for free. You know, just crack me up. So uh, I'm sure he'd used that before and after, but I'd never heard it. And then uh, from then on, we become friends. I've run into him at Sky Clubs after the NBA All-Star game. We sat and talked for an hour or two, and he's just a real decent human being. I've invited him to Hawks games, and I feel like a million bucks that I get to treat somebody like that to an experience. And what's he giving me back? He's given me a chance to get to know him better. Look at all the people you know and all the people, aside from me, the famous people you've, you've interviewed. It's just nice to get to know people, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and actually, speaking of that, I guess partially related, you're in the media a lot, right? So anytime there's some sort of, it doesn't even have to be a divorce. Sometimes it's just some sort of civil suit. You're on the news, whether it's CNN or a different news outlet. If you could speak to one, how are you landing that type of stuff? And then two, what about navigating the media? Well, I don't know if this is appropriate in the podcast, but I'm going to show you where we are. We are right downtown. If I keep going, you would see CNN. We're right next door. And I've learned over time, I may be good on TV. I may not be good. But what I am is available, dressed in a suit and tie, knowledgeable, and willing to just come over on a moment's notice if they need me because it's across the street. So that really had a lot to do with how often I was asked to be on headline news or CNN or record TV. But the rest of it is really just being easy to get along with. You know, the people that are putting on the news they don't know divorce. They don't know the background. So when they say Tom Cruise is getting divorced, can you come talk about it and what's going on? And I say, sure. And I say, you might want to discuss the fact that they've probably been going through this divorce for years. And now that it's public, it's only because it's all said and done and finalized. Um, it's not that the lawyers just fixed it in two weeks. And they're like, that makes sense. So the stuff that I do every day, it's what I do for clients. I break it down, make it easy to understand and simple. And I do that same thing for the news and they seem to like me, and I try to make the people that ask me to be on for their anchors, I make them look good so that when their anchors interview me, they can say to the producer or the booker, that was a good job. You did a good job with that guest. Get him back. Yeah. So in, in many ways, it's not even so much that they're doing you a favor. It's in many ways, you're helping them out, right? Because from my understanding, in, in many of these stories, they need some sort of subject matter expert. Right. I mean, they could probably tell the story themselves, but it's nice when they can have someone and they can say every law professor, Randy Kessler, says that this jury was a very average jury. I had a friend that was on CNN once, a psychologist, and she was talking about the minors that got trapped in Chile, and they said, what's it like when they come out? And she said, well, they're going to have to get used to being public figures. They've been private their whole lives. And at first I thought, that was brilliant. And then I thought, you don't have to be a world-known psychologist to think of that. And like, that's what we're all thinking. But because she had the title, it made it a bigger impact. And that's what I realized, that if I could just say what makes sense to me, it's going to resonate a little bit. Yeah. In terms of like your brand, what would you say that is today? And then because it is so public and, and, you know, in so many instances, how do you protect the brand? So first thing, if my goal, I guess, would be like you are in your business, I want to be an industry leader. I want to be at the top of my game. I want to know everything there is to know about it. I read the cases that come out. I go to as many seminars. We've got to take 12 hours of continuing education in Georgia to be a lawyer. I probably have 200 hours every year because I love it. And it's not like sky miles where you could roll over a hundred miles, but you do it and it makes you a better lawyer. But eventually, that's turned around to where people now think that I must know a lot about family law because of that. So that's really how I've developed my brand or developed my reputation for what it's worth. 
and then protecting it. I've never been one to protect it. Like when you talked about my book, a lot of lawyers said, why would you write a book about the basics of divorce and, and how to get a divorce? Aren't you giving away your advice for free? And I thought, the law is out there for everybody. Anybody can look it up on Google. It's not what the law is. It's how do you use it and how do you fine tune it and make it fit a certain set of circumstances or a case. So I'm not worried about competition. Look, in our business, there's always going to be more. And even when there's one case, you need two lawyers. Not like a personal injury case where there's one lawyer for the injured person. You need a lawyer for the husband and a lawyer for the wife. So there's plenty of business. I've never, ever really been worried about competition. More good lawyers, the better. I love working with good lawyers. I love going back to seeing them and saying, remember that case five years ago? It bonds us a little closer. It makes me feel better about uh, doing a good job for somebody because I can look back on it and say, yeah, we did right by that family. Yeah. I mean, you seem to be very abundance-minded, Ed. On that note, I read a statistic. I remember asking your friend, Laura Wasser, about this sure. on, on the podcast that we did. And again, I don't know if how much truth there is to this, but the statistic that 50% of all marriages end in divorce, right? Are those the true odds? So it's an interesting number. More or less, the answer is yes. But number one, there's not a lot of statistics because the only reported cases, as you know, are the appealed ones. So everything else yeah. is anecdotal. And what if one person stays married forever and then one person gets divorced five times? Does that make it a 95% divorce rate? So it's an awkward sort of number, but of all the marriages that exist, I would say it's always hovering around 50%. Of course, a lot of them are second marriages or rebound marriages, or I learned the term years ago, starter marriages. You get married when you're 17 or you get married because you're pregnant. Those a lot of times are very short marriages. But yes, a lot of people get divorced. COVID didn't make people stay together. In fact, a lot of times made them realize that the things I didn't like about him or her, I now really don't like <laughs> It made some marriages better, for sure. But uh, the joke is that we're sort of recession-proof. Things are bad in your life. You take it out on your spouse, that pushes them away. So what are some of the reasons? That, I mean, you've seen everything at this point. But what are some of the biggest reasons that people get divorced? I hear people say infidelity or financial infidelity. I think it's really just not respecting your spouse and not remembering what it was like when you wanted to be with them. And that's sort of the biggest thing for me. Sometimes, 5% of the time, somebody's just a complete you-know-what, and that's why. He or she has done some horrible stuff. But the rest of the time, it's some version of the grass is greener. We're all human beings, right? You make a million dollars, you want to make two million. You got the most beautiful wife in the world. You start thinking after a while, well, maybe there's somebody else. It's human nature to want more. And I think that's probably the genesis of a lot of divorces. Unfortunately, sometimes it's not true. You get divorced and the grass isn't greener, but sometimes it is. It's kind of interesting asking you this, but just through all these experiences, you're dealing with divorce every single day. Do you believe in <laughs> in, in long-term relationships and true love? Well, you know, it's funny, Michael. I like to joke with people. I, I skipped my first marriage, right? I didn't get married until I was about 40. So I'd done my thing. I dated my wife for a long time. I know what was out there and I'm glad with what I have. Had we gotten married at 20 years old, I would hope it would still be just as good and it would last forever, but who knows? I mean, maybe yeah. that's an unintentional secret that I've uncovered. Yeah. And what about, I mean, just from the other side, let's say somebody's listening to this. Obviously, you represent a lot of high-profile figures. What are some of the things you would recommend to someone, let's say they're not divorced yet, maybe they're not even married or they're newly married, just to protect themselves? So there are a couple of things. If you want to keep your marriage intact, you better open up, see a therapist, listen to what your friends are saying. Ask your friends, what do you think about my relationship? What do you think about my spouse? Because we've all been there where, you know, you have your best friends who won't say anything bad about your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your spouse. And as soon as you break up, it's about time. We've been waiting for this to happen. So ask them, you know, that's one way to see maybe a gauge of where you're at. But as far as if you think it's going to happen, see a lawyer. There's nothing illegal or unethical about talking to a lawyer, just knowing 
what would happen? And the things you might learn, like maybe I should be checking the joint bank account. Maybe I should be wondering why all of a sudden my spouse is working out and dieting and coming home late at night because we're cynics by nature. We worry about worst case scenario, but just talk to somebody who's been through it a few times, even a friend, but go sit for an hour or two with a lawyer, ask what you should be thinking about. I'll tell you a quick story that I think you'll appreciate. You know, you're a great dad. This guy said, I want a divorce and I want to get 50-50 custody. I said, you ready to file? He said, no, maybe a couple of years. I said, why are you here? He goes, because when I get divorced, I want to have a good relationship with my children. My advice was simple. Be a good dad. Just do everything. Take your children to school. Wake up with them. Feed them breakfast. We came in for a checkup once a year for a couple of years. Year three, he came in and said, I'm ready for the divorce. I said, all right, is it going to be a fight? He goes, nope. I said, what do you mean? He said, she sees that I'm a good dad. We've already talked about it. It's going to be 50-50. I mean, I felt so good that I gave him good advice, which was just to be a good dad. And it helped his relationship and it made it easy when he got divorced. So the nice thing about what we do, a lot of the advice we give is just common sense. You know, is it okay if I go out and have a girlfriend now that my wife and I are thinking about a divorce? If you have to ask me, you know, the answer is no. I'm giving the common sense answer. So, yeah, it seems like that people don't make personal decisions the same way they make business decisions. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, if I was a, a contract lawyer, it's all about the money. I want to get people talking about the money because then they're forgetting about the conduct and the bad feelings. If they can think about their future and financial, yes, but I can't tell you how many times people have said, Mr. Kessler, I'd rather give you the money than give it to her. And I say, you won't feel like that in three years and we're going to put that in writing and you're going to think about it a little bit, but it's really, it's emotional. You know, they think they're going to get their two pounds of flesh. If they go to court and they expose him or her as this horrible person, they think they're going to get everything. Judges are not that interested in that. Judges are interested in how much money is there I want to make sure each side can live and be comfortable. And how do we make sure both sides have time with the children? That's really a judge's job. They're too busy to reward people for the suffering. It's not a pain and suffering case. You know, we don't get treble damages for somebody being a bad person in, in divorce. And Randy, I don't, I don't know how much of your business is a recurring revenue model, but I imagine you have some clients that are on their second, third, maybe fourth divorce. How does that happen? I'd sort of twist it a little bit. Divorce is the bigger cases because that's got division of property and everything. After the divorce, there's the enforcement if someone doesn't pay, or the modification. And so we certainly have clients for a long time, and they will call us. And But what's really nice is when you see somebody 15 years later, I ran into one of the Royal Housewives I represented years ago, and I saw her at a Hawks game, and she was with her son, who's a 26-year-old, nice young man now, and that's what feels good for me. But as far as the recurring revenue, since you're the business person and you, it's what you do, for me, making a good impression, doing a good job for my client, and them telling their friends, right? Because we don't get a contingency fee. We can't make a heck of a lot of money just because we do a really good job. We make the same hourly rate, no matter if it's a short case or a long case. But if I do it right, everybody has friends. Everybody knows somebody who's going to need a family lawyer. And if they say, when you need them, go to him. That's my recurring revenue stream. Yeah. And it seems like that happens time and time again. I know we were talking about this even before the podcast. I've had the opportunity to go to a, a Hawks game with you and you, when you've got floor seats. One, I know you love the Hawks, but two, sure. I have to imagine that you meet some pretty interesting people. Maybe some of them become clients. Absolutely. And, you know, and people come up to me and they're people, it's funny enough, they're people that I've only met on Zoom that I'll run into at a Hawks team. That's the first time I actually have an in-person meeting with them. So it's good to be there. But it doesn't matter where you go, where you network. I'm lucky because I love the Hawks. They're across the street from my office. I have expensive seats. So the people sitting in my seats or around me are, are the kind of clientele that are good for my business. Also, it just happens to work out, go hand in hand. And I have more people that say, I want to hire you as a lawyer. And I say, why did you hear about me? And they say, because I saw you sitting up front at the Hawks team, so I know you must be a good lawyer. You never know. 
I remember a few years ago, so you actually, for the people listening to this, Randy, you, you made it into my first book, The Game Changing Attorney, I think in chapter three. Great book. And thank you for saying great. that. It was, um, I mean, I've read it twice. It's, in a, it's a phenomenal book. It really is. It's wonderful, Michael. You did a great job with that. Thank you. So, so there's a part there where I remember we had a conversation years ago and you said, you know, I never had to market because all I had to do was just be a great lawyer. And, and I understood that kind of the nuance of that in the sense that you were always out in the community. You were always networking. You were just everywhere, right? You were very active and engaged, but just so people can understand this correctly, right? Because obviously it seemed like today you have to be much more than just a good lawyer. I think you're 100% right. I happen to be a social person. I happen to be someone who gets out there. I like going out. I like just showing up. I like going to people's parties and bankruptcy seminars where I don't know any of the lawyers and meeting people. So that's worked for me. But if I wasn't like that, yes, I would encourage you go where you're uncomfortable. Not only because you're going to meet people that you've not met before, but the people that are competing with you, they feel the same way. They don't want to go there. So if you're there, you might be the only one in your industry that's there. You have to get out. There are some phenomenal family law attorneys that very few people know. There's some lawyers that you know, I know they're great and I have to double down and, and make sure I'm extra prepared, but I know they're not as busy because they don't care about generating business and they're, they're homebodies and they're just obsessing about their cases and they scare me and I got to be really ready for them. And part of the way I compensate is, you know, we have 17 lawyers here doing all family law because I can't do it all. And we have a lot of business. We have big complex cases, but we have three or four lawyers on most of our cases. So Everything's getting looked at, and that's the way I compensate for not being able to do everything myself. But if you don't have all the business you need, just show up, get out there, you know, get a start. Hire Chris Video and ask them, what do I need to do next? Because that's what you do morning, noon, and night. One word from you is like a million words from somebody like me. One thing I'll commend you on that I think just for those listening that may not be familiar with you, you refer so many other lawyers, like so many cases to other lawyers. Like there's been countless times over the years where I've reached out to you for like this kind of matter, this kind of matter, completely unrelated to family law. And you already have that person line up and you're like, this is the perfect person. So you're constantly sending cases to other lawyers and in a way just kind of giving back to the other lawyers in the legal community. Why do so much of that? So number one, I do it because it feels good. I'm helping people. It's, when I'm talking on TV, I know I'm helping somebody out there. When I'm talking to a client, I'm helping somebody. I'm helping you when you call and say, I need a contract lawyer in California. And I know a lot of lawyers, right? Being head of the family law section of the ABA, I've been all around the country. So I know the best lawyers in Sacramento and Dallas and Tennessee. So it feels really good. But as you said, in hindsight, it's probably not a bad marketing thing either because I want people to think of me. I got a great lawyer, the head of the Canadian Bar Association. Whenever he needs a divorce lawyer anywhere in the country, he calls me. I don't make money. He's not sending me something, but my name is associated with family law. And I know when he's got a divorce in Georgia, for sure he's going to call me. So it takes me two minutes. I'm making him happy. I'm making his client happy. I'm making the lawyer in Nashville, Tennessee happy. What's wrong with giving out warm fuzzies and feeling good about it? It takes a minute of my time. Really, there's no negative to it. And if you didn't have enough on your plate, there's also, I mean, you've written several books as well. What's kind of the thought process behind writing various books? And because, I mean, I know you do a lot of different thought leadership and just put out a lot of content. You're very active on LinkedIn. If you could walk me through some of that. First book, it took me 25 years. I wrote for five years about just the basics of divorce. I was terrified somebody was going to read something and use it against me in court. 20 years later, I represented somebody who wrote a lot of books and she helped me get it done. Robin Spiesman, I'll give her a shout out. And we got it done. And, and I've heard clients say, I've read your book a few times and it's really helped me. So that makes me feel good. And it's doing what I do every day, making it simple. And then ALM called me and said, would you do the Georgia Forms book for family law? I said, you're going to actually pay me to organize my forms, make sure I have all the best forms and put them out there for everybody. They said, yeah, we're not going to pay that much. You get like 5%, but why not? Right now, 
I'm known as the person who wrote the forms for Georgia Family Law. It doesn't hurt my reputation. Within our office, I, people call me all the time and they say, do you have a form for a motion to set aside? I said, look at the forms book. We wrote the forms book. It's there. So that was a no-brainer too. And then I did one on how to mediate a divorce. That was just stream of consciousness. Mediation is a new thing still. There's not a lot of law on it. So it was really just, what do I think about mediation? And it was easy to write. So I've enjoyed those. They were cathartic. I feel like I've given back and I can keep giving without having to meet with everybody. I could just say, read this. It's an easy read. You get it every day. I cannot imagine, Michael, that anybody that reads your book doesn't say there was something in there that just resonated. There are a lot of things that helped me because as I read it, it just reaffirmed a lot of the stuff that I already feel and do and think about and it gave me some new ideas too. Yeah. Well, between all the things you're doing, between the books, you know, you're teaching, litigating, you're on TV. I mean, how do you do it all? How do you balance this? You're also a dad. You surround yourself with smart people that are smarter than you, that, that yeah. like being around you, that you like being around. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. And you can't do it all if you don't like it, but I can't sit still. I mean, I love it. I love Wednesday nights. I go teach my Emory Law School class on how to try a divorce jury trial. And I learn. I learn more than I teach, for sure. I see a young student get up and say, I don't need any notes. Let me just talk. How'd you do that? You know, and I start, and I pick up tricks or, or they nod their head in a way that makes it look like, yeah, this witness is lying, but I don't have to say anything because you can see it in my eyes. That was good. You know, so I love what I do. I'm very, very lucky to have found a career that I enjoy. I don't think you can be good at something if you're not really passionate about it, if you don't really love it. And I don't think you can really be passionate about something if you're not good at it. You know, I think about Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, people that are really the top of their game. What's your mental image of them, right? It's smiling. I think about Michael Mogul. When I think of you, you got the biggest smile on your face. I, I mean, I don't think of you as a scowling person. I think of you as somebody who's happy. I cannot imagine the stress you have, the size of the business that you run. It must be incredible. But you're always happy. You're always smiling because I know you love what you do. What a privilege it is, right, to be able to do anything like this. And we're both Jewish boys that I think have, have hopefully made our parents proud at some point, you know, in, in this, ah, in this entire know, journey. It was a hard time. I know it. But, you, you know. know, so if you could give a piece of advice to an attorney, let's say they want to grow their firm, whether family law or not, let's say, you know, even if they're in a different practice area, what, what would it be today? Like, what have been some of the greatest learning lessons for you? So I'd say get out there, talk to the people that you admire, that you respect, take them to lunch, flatter them, say, can I ask you how you got where you are and you'll learn something. And don't be afraid, right? Just get out there, talk to them. But the main thing is figure out what works. You'll hear all sorts of things about marketing. You should do this. You should do podcasts. What has worked for you? If taking lawyers to lunch has generated the most business for you, then go to three lunches in one day if you have to, right? There's no rules. Speaking at a seminar, if you're a good writer and writing articles for newsletters has generated business, then spend more time doing that. You don't have to do a little bit of everything. You're good at something. Whatever you're good at, do more of that. You don't have to do everything just because everybody else does it. Figure out what you're good at, do it. And even if it doesn't generate business, you're going to like it because like I said, if you're good at it, then you're going to like doing it, whatever it is. It may be playing basketball on in the Lawyers League basketball and you meet a lot of lawyers that way. You get to play basketball, you get to exercise, maybe go into your favorite gym, figure out what's worked for you and that you enjoy doing and you will profit from it. Well, and, and I want to highlight because I know, obviously, the importance of following your passion and doing work that you love. But without a doubt, I mean, there's probably days where you wake up and it's, you know, not going to be a day you look forward to. There's going to be aspects of things you may have to do, you know, on certain days that you just don't love compared to other days. The discipline required, if you could speak to some of that, just the consistency, especially over the years. So one of my favorite sayings, and it's very cliche, and we've all heard it, is this too shall pass, right? I've got this trial that I know is gonna be hard. My client's got some terrible facts. You know, our best case scenario is to get him 10% of what he wants. And I just don't wanna face the facts and I don't wanna face the result. And I know that we're gonna do the best we can. Number one, I know the client's gonna judge me not by the results, but by whether he or she feels like I worked really hard and did the best I can. 
Because I've had clients say, you did everything you could. That was the judge. It wasn't you. That makes me feel good. And number two, there will be a day after the trial where the trial is behind me and I'm looking on to the next thing. Just that peace of mind, that works in life too, right? Operations, illnesses, things that happen in life. I know your story very well, Michael, right? Y'all had your issues and you've had hospitalizations, and but they're behind you. And you know sooner or later, those will be in the past and there will be a brighter day. So if you can think about the fact that everything is temporary, a new day will come. And that other saying, don't get so high with your highs and so low on your lows because everything fluctuates no matter what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's like the saying that like our track record of making it through bad days is 100%, right? Right, right. So, like if you're going through hell, just keep going. Yeah. Randy, just through all the years, obviously now you, you're highly admired, right? The tremendous success. How do you define success? I mean, I just think if you're happy, right, content. There's an Arabic word called mopsuit, right? You're just, you're content. And it just sort of defines it for me. If you're content, if you're happy, yeah, we all want more. We want to do better. But if you're happy, if you feel like you've done something good in the world, that's all it is for me. I, you know, when I turned 50, I just turned 60. When I turned 50, I remember, what do I want? And people would say, what do you want to do? I want to be where I am now. I'm lucky enough that as long as I don't lose what I have, as long as I can maintain, I'm not greedy. I like where I am. So if you can be content with what you're doing. And the other thing is, if, if you hate what you do, you hate your career, you might have to do it to make some money. But while you're doing it to make money, figure out what it is that you really love. If you like trying cases and you don't like doing the administrative, and I'm speaking your language now, right? Then get somebody to do the administration so you can try cases. If you like the administration and not trying cases, hire somebody who can try the cases and have a good consultant, have somebody that's really good at it. And again, you know, I'm not trying to give you too many props here, but get an organization behind you that, that helps compensate for what you're not good at. If generating business is not your strong suit, get somebody who's really good at it. There are people that do it morning, noon, and night that live it, breathe it, that will understand you in a second. We can spell that C-R-I-S-P, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what you've been so strongly realizing is just, you know, of course, people are everything and you've attracted a great team. How would you define the culture of your firm? People want to be here. I mean, I'm so blessed that, you know, people say, I talked to a lawyer last night at the Hawks team, you know, we're trying to grow our firm, but we're having a hard time hiring people. We're lucky. And maybe it's because of 30 years of hard work. People want to be here and we get resumes all the time. They want to be with us because of our reputation. So I think the first thing is be good, get a good reputation. It'll be easy to attract people. The next thing is, Treat them better than you'd want to be treated and value them and respect them and say thank you. I represented a gentleman once who had 400 employees on gigantic hair salons that people probably heard of. And I once asked him, we were waiting for a meeting, and I said, what's your job description? What do you do every day? He said, I make sure the people who work for me are happy. Brilliant. Yeah. He goes, I just make sure that everybody there enjoys being there and I listen. What is it? I also heard Jesse Itzler once who founded Marquise Jets when it was a new jet, private jet rental company. And he's asked his employees, how would you do your job if nobody told you how to do your job? And that sort of empowers people to think on their own and say, you know, maybe this is a novel problem. I got to figure it out. And when they come to me, they say, here's what I've decided to do in this case. Is that okay? I love that question instead of how do I do this? So we've got a culture of people that help each other. They're self-motivated. They, they do their own thing. They like their independence. Lawyers don't like to be told what to do. They like to feel smart. And, and our lawyers, we want to let them feel smart and let them figure stuff out. And there's checks and balances. My biggest emotional high in the office is when I walk into another lawyer's office and I see two lawyers talking about a case, someone's bouncing it off of another lawyer. It's better for the client, it's better for the lawyer, and it also makes sure that you're not doing something really stupid, right? I'm wondering if there's just any parallels between like how you operate as a leader, but also between how you work with your clients. It was interesting speaking with Laura Wasser because she made it very clear in the sense that she's not there to be their therapist. She can recommend a great therapist. How do you approach when you're working with clients? Is it just helping them on the legal side or is it just also sometimes navigating the uh, the emotional dynamics? 
Well, it's interesting because everybody wants to be friends with a celebrity, right? You want to be able to say, hey, I'm friends with, you know, she's, she's friends with a lot of her former clients, Kim Kardashian, Stevie Wonder, but that's a mutual respect. What's hard to recognize is that when you're good and you're respected, they feel the same way. I'll never forget. I represented Jerry Stackhouse years ago, famous basketball player. And I'd done an interview for ESPN and he called me and I said, you got a family law issue, something I can help you with? He's like, no, I was just sitting out here at the gym, saw my lawyer on TV. I figured I'd call you and say, what's up, Randy? He was my friend. I mean, it felt like a million bucks to earn his respect. So it's not that I go out there and want to be their friends. I want to earn their respect. I want to earn their trust. And then the friendship comes after. And that, that's a nice thing. But you do your job. They're hiring you, like Laura said, not to be their friend, not to be their therapist. They're hiring you to get them through this hard period of time in their life and to tell them the truth. We have people that are much more successful than we are, than I am, that will tell me, I couldn't have done it without you. You, you were the rock. You were this, the stable person that guided me, that put me back on track. Because... Nobody tells those people no, right? A lot of people that are famous, everyone around them says yes so they can stay close to them. Right. We got to say no. You can't do that. You got to give them more money. You got to give her more time with the children. You've got to do this. Nobody tells them that. And they come back and they say, you were right. It worked out. I'm glad I listened to you. Sometimes they don't listen and they hire somebody that'll tell them yes. And you read about it later in the papers and that's the way it is. Is there anything at this point in the family law space that would surprise you? Like, or just even anything in, in recent client work? I look forward to the days that I get surprised. You know, I really like hearing those novel questions because uh, you hear stuff and you just can't believe it. And, uh, and not just from clients. I mean, I go to conferences with judges and, and you talk to judges at, at, at the dinners or the, the meetings and the stories they hear and the stories they see. No, I mean, there, there's nothing that I would say that's appropriate for being on air. There are things that would shock the average person that don't shock me anymore. The stuff, the pictures we see, the websites we're told to visit, the photographs we're given, it's incredible. Is, is there, I mean, I'm just curious as kind of an overall, I don't know if this is like a sociology question or what, but just like over the last few years, have you just seen like dynamics in relationships start to change and how much of that is perhaps driven by social media or just this type of culture? We always have our phones out, cameras out. Are you seeing just differences in like relationship dynamics? Yes, but I can't figure out if it's because there's more exposure because everyone's got a camera and because, you know, the lyrics to songs now, I hear the songs that my child listens to. I don't know if we're desensitized to it, so I don't know if that's making people act crazier or if it's making people say, that's just like those horror movies that I know they're they're fiction. I can't tell. I think people have always been people, and you look back to the ancient days and ancient civilizations, and they had a lot of the same issues we do today. I think people have always been the same. I just think there's more exposure. They say sunlight is the best disinfectant. I think there's a lot more sunlight today with uh, social media and with everyone having a camera on their hip. Yeah. It's interesting because my wife and I, we went to dinner this past weekend. We're, we're sitting there, we're looking around and we're seeing all these couples around us just like staring into their phones, right? Like you have people sitting across from one another and just looking at their phones and you would think, right? You left your home, you're here at dinner and you're more interested in looking at your Facebook, you know, or Instagram timeline than you are in talking to the person across from you. I don't know if that's good for a relationship, but you couple that with just the fact that all the different things that we've been experiencing over the last several years, and it seems like relationships either are not as strong or communication is broken down. I agree with you. It goes back to what I said before. I think people think the grass is greener. Now you can see the grass a lot easier. You can be at a table with your spouse and you see the grass is greener because you're seeing pictures of other people. I think the distractions are a lot more prevalent. Also, if one of the spouses says, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to look at my phone, but the partner is looking at it, fine, I'm going to look at my phone. And then they look up from their phone and they see you looking at your phone, so they go back to their phone. I absolutely agree with you. I think uh, it's made it too easy to disassociate and to not engage with the person that's there in front of you. Look, I'm guilty. It's very hard for me to put my phone down. I think everybody should have a diagnosis of TBC, time between checking. Mine's probably three. I probably go three minutes 
<laughs> before I check my emails. And if it's more than three minutes, I start getting uptight that maybe I'm missing something or maybe there's somebody that needs my attention. And it, it's hard, but it's just, you need some discipline. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, recently, I think like Phil Knight was praised like, in, in the LeBron James photo when he was like breaking like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's like scoring record. And like, there's that photo of everybody taking a picture or video on their phone and he's the only one sitting there actually watching the moment. So it seems like that's becoming less and less right. common. Did you experience it? In person, or did you experience it through your phone? That's exactly right. That's a that was interesting. I saw that too, and I was thinking about. Sometimes it's nice just to sit back and watch something. Somebody else will have it on camera, but I mean, there's something about a mental image, right? Remembering it in your mind. It's also cool to be there and have the picture. Of, it's not so much the picture of the event. It's a verification that you actually witnessed the event and you were there when it happened, and it makes people feel good and special and important. I think. Well, I want to shift gears, Aaron. I want to ask you just through all of the years, like, what are some of the habits that you practice that keep you just engaged and motivated and excited? And like, are there, any, are there any specific things you do day to day? Post-COVID, I try to come in the office more than I need to. Nowadays, you could probably do a lot of the work from home. I think interaction, social interaction is very important. I ask questions. I like to ask why. I will ask my young lawyers when they say they're going to file this, I say, why? Or they say, we have a hearing tomorrow. And I say, what is the goal of the hearing? I say, well, our client's not getting enough support. I say, that's not a goal. What's the goal? Well, our client wants more support. What's your specific, precise goal? And I try to make them better. And they say, well, she needs, how much does she need? 4,000 a month. Can he afford 4,000 a month? Well, now let me ask you again, what is your goal? What do you expect to do at the end of this trial? I want the judge to award $4,000 a month. And how are you going to prove that? I'm going to show the need and I'm going to show the ability to pay. And so time does make you a better lawyer, I think, especially in our field. You start to see things, you start to think more like a judge. So Thinking about it from the big picture, and again, I'm very lucky. I have so many good people working for me and with me that I have the luxury of being able to step back and say, let me take the 50,000-foot view. Is the judge going to really appreciate you bad-mouthing the other side, or are they going to say, you're just buying into your client's attitude, your client's persona? So I try to make people step outside of their own personal biases and say, if I was a judge, how would I react to this? I think that's probably the best thing I do within my firm uh, for my lawyers and for our staff. And this is unrelated, but what are your thoughts between like child support disputes between two billionaires, like a billionaire, ex-husband, billionaire, ex-wife? Can you explain this to me? There should be no dispute, right? They should both say, you know what the dispute should be? I'm going to pay more than you. I'm going to do more than you. The children of a divorce, it's not a good thing. The one benefit, if anything, is they have two parents vying for their love, trying to spend time with them, trying to support them. And yeah, they may get spoiled. And that's a hard thing to not spoil a child, especially when you think they're not going to come on a visit with me if I don't treat them right. But if they could coordinate that, billionaires fighting about, you know, I can't afford this, can't afford that. I got to be careful what I say, right? Because I'm going to, I'm defending some folks that are being asked to pay a lot of child support. And I don't want to be on record as saying you should just pay whatever you got because there are some corollary arguments, right? She's not really spending on the children. What I would say is any money that can be dedicated for the children, for their college expenses, for their vehicles, for their insurance, there shouldn't be a question. If you got billions, they should have all those secured. But plan, right? A trust where your child can get part of it when they're 21, part when they're 31. Get on the same page. But, you know, billionaires fight. I do not want to be a lawyer in court representing one billionaire against another billionaire where they can't agree on how much money their child needs to be supported by when there are 15 other cases waiting in line where the, the mother or the father needs a few hundred more dollars just to eat. And I'm sure just over the years, people have given you quite a bit of advice. What's been the best advice you've received and what's been the worst? My first presentation, I was asked to speak on how to enjoy practicing family law and not to worry so much about it. And I'd been practicing three years. So I talked to all the old lawyers at the time. And one of the older lawyers at the time said, listen carefully to what the client wants in family law. 
You may think that they want the brand new Mercedes-Benz, but they may like the old jalopy. You may think they want the multi-million dollar bucket home, but they like the old shack that's on the beach in Florida or Virginia. Listen to what your client really wants. Does she really want custody or she really wants an excuse to be able to try her own career because he's already got his career? Listening. Just learn to listen. There's a Chinese proverb that someone once told me, which is you learn more when you listen than when you talk. I think that's probably the best thing I've learned is try to listen to what clients want. I think maybe that's part of why we're successful, that clients think they've been heard and they know that we're listening to them and we're trying to get them what they want, not what we think they want. Those movies, those stereotypical movies, you walk into the divorce lawyer's office and let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go after alimony. You're going to go after this. That's not what the client's hiring you for. They're hiring you to listen and help them get something, peace of mind, freedom, independence. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's time with their children, but it's usually a lot deeper than that. And if you listen, you'll be a better lawyer. What about the worst piece of advice? I can't really think of any bad advice because I've put it out of my mind if there is some bad advice. I did hear a lawyer once say that during the initial consultation, you know what he's listening for? He's listening for, how's the client going to pay me? What money do they have? That's all he was worried about. And I remember thinking about that. And he said it as a joke. It put me off. It made me lose some respect for that lawyer. And sometimes that creeps back into my mind when I think, this case, they can't afford us. And then I realized, I don't care if they can afford us. I'm going to give them my advice. If they have to borrow the money or they don't have the money, we'll figure that part out. But I don't like that sometimes that creeps into my mind, like this client can't afford us. You know, the champagne taste on a beer budget, that kind of phrase, uh-huh. uh, it doesn't sit well with me. So, so Randy, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? So I don't want to discount the name Game Changers. I love that name. But if it was me, I would say game, it's not as sexy. It doesn't sound as good. I'd say I'd like to be a game improver, a game enhancer. If I'm going to change the game, I just want to make sure it's for the better, right? If I'm going to have an effect on family law, you know, I worked a lot with the family division and helping develop that system in Fulton County, the books I've written. I want to leave it better than I am. So I don't know if it's an enormous change, but I want to leave some sort of positive change on whatever I do in my class laws. And this sounds very egotistical or conceited or whatever you want to say. I've got the kind of job that if I do my job right, I'm helping the world in a small way. It may be one family at a time, but I'm so lucky that if I do a good job for my clients, I've done something good for the world. And I really believe that. And I, uh, I hope that that's the, uh, the result of all my efforts when my career is said and done. I want to give a huge thank you to Randy Kessler for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at gamechangingattorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Randy Kessler, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com.